Hey everyone. Before we get started, I wanted to mention a couple of things. First of all, it is July 3rd, 2016. And here in the U.S., that means every knucklehead within a five-block radius is setting off fireworks. So you might hear some noise in the background. I apologize. In addition, the other thing I wanted to say is this episode deals with some fairly troubling topics, and I'm not a big fan of warning labels or disclaimers or trigger warnings, but we're dealing with the story of Persephone, and there is a conversation to be had about what happens to her at the hands of Hades. In all honesty, I think we end up in a good place, a respectable place. But if that's a problem for you, I wanted you to be aware of it ahead of time. And finally, given the subject matter, as I said in our last episode, I don't have any sponsors, but there is a way that you can help. And I don't mean me, and I don't mean the show. Uh, instead, you should consider donating to a worthy organization. Maybe take a look at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. You can also look at um, the RAIN organization, which is at rain.org. At any rate, I'll include links in the show notes on the website, but I wanted you to be aware of it. Okay. On with the show. Now shall I tell of things that change? New being out of old. Since you, O gods, O gods, created mutable created mutable arts, created mutable arts and gifts. Give me the voice. The voice. Give me the voice. The voice to tell the shifting, shifting, the shifting story of the world. It's a beautiful afternoon. The sun is warm and the sky is a rippling patchwork of white and blue. The fields flow with wildflowers dancing in the western breeze. A girl lays on her back in the tall grass, eyes closed, soaking it all in. She feels the hum of life all around her. The bees, anxious at their work, the industry of the ants deep below the grass, the joy of the rabbits at play while the sun smiles down on them. The earth turns under her and she feels as though she is floating, drifting away on a placid river. Her name is Cora and she is grateful for the sun in the silence. Her companions, in some versions of the story, they're her sisters, they're off gathering wildflowers. Their inane chatter annoyed Cora to no end, so she slipped away and found this quiet little spot where she could just lay back and drift along in the warm summer breeze. Then, 
A shadow falls across her as a cool current drifts past your legs when you're swimming in the deeper part of a river. She opens her eyes. Nothing. Just the waving grasses above her, the sky and sun beyond. No one. Then, a hand over her mouth, another on her wrist, pulling her to her feet. A cold hand, firm and cold. She hears the rush of horses. Strong arms hold her tight. She has one moment to scream before the earth opens up and the cold darkness swallows sun and sky. Mother! The story of Persephone has been a favorite of mine for as long as I can remember, but Unlike the story of Baucis and Philemon in our last episode, I do not have any clear memory, or any memory at all, really, of when I first heard or read the story. All I know is, it's been with me since I was young. It's one of those stories that's at the core of my own beliefs, and for deeply personal reasons I won't go into now, we honestly just don't have the time, Persephone is a very important figure to me personally. She has been with me for a very long time. I can't tell you how much she means to me, and to be honest, I probably shouldn't. At any rate, like Balsas and Philemon, this is one of my core texts. And while I was researching this episode, I found myself in the midst of a mild, oh, let's call it a mild crisis of faith. Because the story that I had carried with me for so long, the story that I had even been presumptuous enough to add into one of my own novels, it was not the story that I thought it was. This was a problem for me. It still is, actually, because it's a tough one. The story of Hades and Persephone, it has themes and events that seriously conflict with my modern, progressive, squishy sensibilities. You know the story. You've seen the paintings, I'm sure. And there's that sculpture by Jean Lorenzo Bernini, an exquisite, terrible masterpiece. The face of the maiden, her panic is palpable, and the cruel brutality on Hades' face is chilling, but most distressing is the most masterful work by the artist. Those thick fingers digging into her thighs, deep enough to leave bruises that will take a long, long time to heal. It's painful to look at, even in photos. That's not my Persephone or my Hades. That's something ugly and terrible. And as I started working my way through the texts, I found that what I believed to be true was not in fact the case. As a side note, I realize that it is ill-advised to approach an ancient text and impose your modern sensibilities on it. I realize that every text needs to be understood in the context of its time. 
We have to do the best we can to read it as somebody at the time would have read it. And once we have, once we've approached it with that respect, then we are free to try and make sense of it in the context of our contemporary world. It's not as easy as it sounds. Especially with this story. After the defeat of the Titans, the three Olympian brothers, Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades, please note, none of their sisters were present, they set about dividing up the spoils of their war. There were, we are told, three kingdoms to sort out, the sky, the sea, and the underworld. So they cast lots. Zeus won the sky. Poseidon, the sea. And Hades? Well, as the eldest son of Kronos, I assume Hades would have had some kind of birthright claim. He should have had his pick before the others, or even taken it all. But there are larger patterns at work, older patterns. Zeus was the youngest son of his father, whom he overthrew who in turn was the youngest son of his father, whom he overthrew. The fates, they love these patterns. And some say that Zeus had a hand in how things played out. Maybe he gave the fates a little nudge with some trickery of his own when they were drawing lots. Who's to say? Regardless, somehow... Hades ended up getting the short end of the stick. Zeus won the sky, Poseidon the sea, and Hades? The underworld. A cold and lifeless place lacking in all joy. A place of darkness and sorrow. Remote and distant from the upper world, even from Olympus itself. You're cut off from everything. Even the society of the gods, think of it. As far as real estate is concerned, the underworld doesn't exactly have a whole lot of curb appeal. It's a fixer-upper at best, a territory with perhaps the largest share of responsibilities to shoulder as well. A taxing realm to rule, to be sure. Imagine having that job. And your responsibilities are significant and more or less unappreciated. You are the warden, caretaker, and judge for all of the castoffs. The titans are imprisoned there, and the dead are a never ending stream of responsibility. You're the concierge at a hotel that no one wants to visit. Apart from your uncles, the monstrous cyclops, and hecatonkeries, you are more or less alone without any peers or helpers to lighten the load. But you are Hades. Your lot is cast. So you do your job. It's unclear how exactly Cora got onto Hades' radar screen. Some say she was part of the negotiation, that Zeus offered his daughter as a consolation for the bad luck of winning the underworld. This 
sort of thing wasn't uncommon in those times. For a daughter to be betrothed as part of a land deal, marriages of this kind were a socioeconomic tool, drawing powerful families into alliances, preserving legacy homesteads, and ensuring the perpetuation of acceptable bloodlines. Anything to strengthen the family alliance. And it was equally common for a young maiden to be betrothed to an older man, even keeping things all in the family, as it were. Hades, after all, is Cora's uncle. Common then, and unfortunately still all too common now. In some versions of the Hades-Persephone myth, this is precisely what takes place. There are other accounts, however, that say Hades acted without any sanction or permission. That version goes that Hades made a visit to the upper world to examine the damage from a recent earthquake. And while he was there, some say that Aphrodite spied him passing on his chariot and pointed out the gloomy god to her son Eros. One quick draw of the bowstring, and Hades was now under the thrall of an unfamiliar sensation. Love. Unfortunately for Cora, she didn't receive a similar shot to inoculate her from the unwelcome advances of her uncle. There are some who say that Aphrodite had ulterior motives. That with the rise of virgin goddesses, she was starting to lose her place and her worship. My power grows less. Do you not see how Pallas Athena and Diana, the queen of the chaste, have both deserted me? Ceres' daughter will stay a virgin, and so... At her urging, her son, Eros, Cupid, draws the bow. Or so the story goes. Some say there was no arrow. They say Hades just saw her and took her. Regardless of how it came about, there's no disputing the fact that Hades abducted her. Well, actually there is. There's a strong case to be made that he did nothing of the sort. As I was researching this episode, I found more and more scholars pointing out a stark difference between the Roman version of Persephone's story and the earlier Greek versions. The sticking point is the word rape. In the Roman versions, the word used in Latin is raptu, which means exactly what you think it means. Actually, it means to be caught or snatched up, carried off. It's where we get the word rapture from, as a matter of fact. Also, the word rape. Because, as I understand it, there is a sexual connotation to the word in Roman times. In fact, the Romans seem to have introduced the idea of rape into the story, though I believe not by design. 
I believe the Roman writers were merely using the closest word in their language that they could to the one that mapped best to the original Greek word. Because in Greek versions of the story, the earlier versions, the word that is used is harpizin, which means to snatch up or carry off. But unlike the Latin word, it has no sexual connotation. Harpizin is the word from which we get harpy, those claws that snatch and pull apart unwitting travelers. I also assume it's where we get the word harp, fingers plucking the strings. It's interesting to note, in some later versions, Cora's sisters were rebuked by their mother, Demeter, for not keeping a closer eye on her, and they were turned into harpies. So, no rape then. That's just semantic drift. But there's still an abduction. The poor maiden is carried off against her will. Or is she? Because the further back you go, closer again to the source, the story and its meaning become clearer, simpler, cleaner, less stressing for modern sensibilities. As I understand it, in the oldest versions of the stories, the early Greek ones and those versions which originate from a time even before the Greeks, the word used is not an abduction or a kidnapping. It is, in fact, the same word that was used to describe the traditional ride or journey that a groom would undertake when he brought his bride to their new home for the first time. So, no rape, no abduction, just a new bride being carried over the threshold. Now, threshold rang a bell when I typed it somewhere in the back of my mind, so I followed the echoes back to a source which breaks down the etymology of Persephone's name, which some believe means a female thresher of grain. Thresher. Threshold. But I digress. I realize that some of you might feel like I'm whitewashing the story, rationalizing away the elements that I find disturbing. Maybe you think I'm a Hades apologist, which, admittedly, is probably true. We'll get to that in a future episode, but your concern is valid in so much as it is almost mistaken. Because I don't think it can be disputed that the story softens the further back you go. This isn't a modern retelling that turns the story on its head, inverting it, making it the opposite of what it originally was. If anyone is doing that, it's the Romans, and to a lesser degree, the Greeks. Because the story is softer the further back you go, and for me, it's a relief. At the outset, I found myself having to set aside my understanding of Persephone and her relationship with Hades, which was, admittedly, fairly romantic and soft. Working my way back through the texts, I had to accept some hard facts, things that 
would not be reconciled with my long-standing view of the story and these two gods that I love so much. But then I moved backward, inward, following the ripples of the story, trying to get to a place where they originate, where they contract and define the shape of my gods. And there she was, waiting with her husband. In her book, Lost Goddesses of Early Greece, Charlene Spretnak tells us that the pre-Hellenic myths of Persephone never mention an abduction or anything even remotely close to one. No. According to her, the earliest stories place Persephone in the underworld as a willing and kind ruler alongside Hades. She is there, holding up a torch to guide the newly dead, to draw them close to her so that she can welcome them, embrace them, feed them, and bless them with tranquility, kindness, and wisdom. And what does she feed them? Pomegranate seeds. That's my Persephone. I realize it might not be yours. I understand. If you want to hold on to the later stories with all their horror and brutality, that's a choice you make. As I've said before, at the end of the day, we all choose what we believe. I went to religious schools my whole life, all the way through college. In theology classes, we were told that the Bible was whole and complete, that nothing could be added to it or taken away. Even if someone wrote an amazing, inspired piece of theological analysis, like, for instance, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, and man, do they love C.S. Lewis, that wasn't something to be considered on the same level as anything in the Bible. This never made sense to me. Why? Why would God go silent? Why would he fix his last words firmly 2,000 years in the past when there was so much more guidance that his people would need? We're talking centuries of commentaries, analysis, sermons, poetry, plays, prayers, hymns. And you're telling me that none of it has the same weight, resonance, or inspiration as a collection of ancient scraps assembled through an admittedly messy editorial process? I mean, really? The hymns and songs attributed to King David in the Old Testament are somehow more valid and divine than those written by Fanny Crosby or John Donne? It seems so arbitrary and unlikely, uncharacteristic even, for God to do that, for any God to do that. But maybe not as uncharacteristic for a priest to make that call, particularly one who served a singularly harsh monotheism. One book, one God, 
so much easier to contain, so much easier to control. It's more difficult to control the faith that is consciously and deliberately open, a faith that is handcrafted over time from a broad collection of stories and experiences spanning millennia, a faith that remains open throughout history, that welcomes new texts and ideas and other interpretations. It's an organic, free-range kind of faith. Anyways, I think that's the reason why mythology appeals to me so much. I believe that stories are organic, living things. I mean that in the literal sense, just so you know. Stories change as they pass from person to person, from generation to generation, from culture to culture. They evolve and adapt, fitting into each new iteration, jumping species like a virus, changing as they go, but also changing us in the process. So, yes, the story of Persephone I thought I knew was not exactly the story that exists, or at least the story that has grown and evolved over time. In a way, even my own little retelling of it is a part of that process. It's a humbling and encouraging thought. Every new version of the story of Persephone has the potential to add to it, casting those ripples even further over time. Sometimes the ripples bounce back across each other, heading in different directions. It can't be helped. It's just how stories work. And each new version of a story shows us a reflection, not only of our own modern sensibilities and prejudices, but also those of past generations. The line between mythology and dogma, between canon and fan fiction, is not nearly as well-defined as we might think or want. So I have to, yet again, choose what I believe. I like the older stories. The oldest ones, I should say. I recognize Persephone and Hades there. I like the story of the bride and groom. But I know that also means I have to find a way to reconcile that with what comes after. I can accept Persephone's betrothal as just another trinket to sweeten the deal between the gods. That's in line. It makes sense for the time in which it was written. And it explains Cora's understandable initial reluctance to join her gloomy uncle in a dark and distant land, as his wife no less. And if in time... Cora grew to love him, and not some kind of mythological Stockholm Syndrome, but genuinely grew to love him, and he grew to love her, and she took her place on the throne as the kind and welcoming queen of the dead, Persephone. I can accept that, and the original texts back it up. 
But this isn't just Korah's story. If we're going to go back and work through the harsher elements and themes on her side, then we also need to spend some time looking at her mother, Demeter. Because Demeter went through hell when her daughter vanished. She was driven to the edge of madness, frantically searching for clues, and then her rage at Zeus for his part in the event, and her sorrow blanketing the land, pushing the earth into winter. It's all so heartbreaking. I have to reconcile that with where I've ended up now. And then there's that little but oh-so-troubling matter of all those pomegranate seeds. How did that really play out? How does that line up with the version where love slowly develops between the bride and groom? These are a few of the questions we'll try to answer in our next episode. Until then... I leave you with these words by Keely Geary. They say that I was taken away, screaming and hiccuping like a spoiled child, my white arms flailing about in a most unseemly fashion, as if I were some sort of insect plucked from an olive leaf. For God's sake, I am not completely helpless. And now the stain of pomegranate seeds colors my lips, and I assert that I've not been deceived. I have always thought it best to be quite independent, regardless of grief. Find Your Gods is written, performed, and produced by T.M. Camp. So, now you know who to blame. The contents of this episode are copyright 2016, T.M. Camp, and may not be copied, distributed, transmitted, or otherwise reproduced in any format or medium without his express written permission. Violators will suffer terrible fates over long years as the slow curse of the gods takes root in their lives and poisons the very foundations of all they have tried to build. Join us online at findyourgods.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash findyourgods. We're also on Twitter at findyourgods. You can also find us on findyourgods.tumblr.com And we're even on Pinterest. Because, you know, why not?